HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today on this blazing <laughs> summer day, talking to the salad queen, Julia Sherman of Salad for President. Now, you're an artist in your own right, and you muse through these amazing, candid conversations with other artists about their creative processes, almost in the same way that we kind of talk about chefs composing dishes these days. But mm-hmm. which one is it? Do you consider yourself... An artist, an interviewer, a conversationalist. Um, where did this project start and why? Um, I guess I, it kind of started from finding myself at a place where I no longer cared about any of those titles or whether <laughs> which one I was. So um, that can be a very freeing place where one might be able to declare to the world that their primary concern is with salad. Um, but I mean, my background is as a visual artist and Um, I was very much steeped in the fine art world and had gone to many more schools than I'd like to uh, admit and was sort of like in this insular conversation around art and the art market. And I felt like kind of I was losing sight of the things that I really loved about being part of an artist community, um, all the while making salad and um, feeding other artists and being the person who organized and got everyone together and facilitated a dialogue that kind of maybe moved away from gossip and gallery world kind of, um, you know, minutiae. But I think um, as an adult, I realized that maybe my best skill was not necessarily as a photographer or an exhibiting artist or um, a writer, whatever, all of those things that I am, but really as a conversationalist or as somebody who could 
walk into someone a stranger's home and make them feel comfortable while I'm taking their picture and jumping all over their countertops and f- documenting the food they're making. All these are like weird, uncomfortable situations. Yeah, I, I think a charming documentarian. <laughs> and I, I've done that in the past, too, and it's really hard. I kept on writing notes about you. I kept on writing photographer. No. Artist, no. And <laughs> that, that definition, especially growing up in a family of artists like you did, I mean, yeah. what, your grandmother's introduced your parents and that right. trickle down of, of defining who you are as an artist yeah. is one very hard thing to leave behind and move forwards from. I mean, I don't think I've left it behind. I think uh, the, the realization I had was that I, an artist is not defined by the things that they make. And so that's a misconception and that's a... That's um, something that, you know, we're told once we become professionalized. But I think my favorite artists manage to skirt that kind of pressure and really consider themselves an artist the moment they wake up and the moment they go to sleep and everything in between. But uh, whether they go to the studio that day or not. So I think an artist is more... um, they're in, out in the world asking questions and they're out in the world making people a little bit uncomfortable or putting them outside their comfort zone in order to get to a conversation or in order to draw something out. So I think an artist is like a, is like a social servant or something. <laughs> well, I, I feel like you did the same and redefined salad for a lot of people in, in your blog and your book because uh, salad isn't roughage and dressing. No. Sa- salad is what to you? What, what would you define salad as? Salad is um, is a, an act or practice of putting disparate uh, different disparate materials together. So it's about comparing and contrasting. It's about uh, juxtaposition. It's about complementary uh, materials. Like I think a salad. I think there's something intuitive about salad making for artists and for a lot of people because they feel like they know that it's about arrangement and presentation more than it is about technique necessarily. Um, but I think. Um, I think that that kind of um, expanded view of salad is what I like about it. I like the artist view of salad, too, because in the 70s in New York, Gordon Maddox Clark had mm-hmm. this, do you even call it a restaurant? Yes, Called it was a restaurant. Food. Everyone yeah. ate there. <laughs> they had their meals there as a restaurant. And then also Gavin Brown, contemporarily, mm-hmm. uh, has an upstate restaurant. And mm-hmm. these are two artists and gallerists. Um, that obviously approach salad in a different way than someone picking up some baby greens and, mm-hmm. and tossing them in a large bowl. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think is different about an artist's approach towards salad uh, than just, I, I'd hate to call it a layman, but someone going to the supermarket and coming home for sustenance rather than art? I don't know that I think, uh, I make a clear distinction that I don't consider my salad or the salads I make with other artists artworks in and of themselves. Um, the salad is still just a salad. I think um, an artist takes to the process of making a salad in a in a really natural way because they think a lot about color and texture and how how things look. I mean, just aesthetics. And I think you know, fresh ingredients and um, composing a salad is different than putting together a pot roast or making you know a, a, a pizza or whatever. Like, I think there's something very particular to the act of presenting a salad that that artists necessarily that artists tend to really understand but i don't think that that means their salad is better than yours 
Yeah. It's definitely not. I mean, I've had some artists make me salads that were not good at all. <laughs> some of them looked cool and tasted bad or, or they're, you know, whatever. They think what the artist understands is why salad for me. So they understand that using salad as a ploy to get in there and to facilitate a conversation. And when I walk out, like, I mean, I just came from an artist studio right now and we were making a salad and, you know, he, he just texted me, that was the best studio visit I ever had. And I was like, well, it wasn't a studio visit at all. We made ceviche, <laughs> you know? So I think that they're, they understand that there's a kind of like conceptual practice at play. Well, yeah, like you said, there's a practice and it's so reflective of almost this anthropological self. Mm-hmm. And I love that in the past you, you've studied wig makers mm-hmm. or cobblers, mm-hmm. uh, spent time with Benedictine monks? Nuns. Nuns. Talk to me about those experiences and how they give you a better view on someone's process. Yeah. I mean, I think I've always been really curious. Maybe it's because I was um, a different kind of artist and I wasn't really a studio artist. I mean, I've made a lot of studio art, but I never really wanted to be alone in my studio. And I think because of that, I've crafted a lot of long-term research-driven projects where the idea is that I just go spend time with somebody who's an expert at what they do, and then I see what happens from there. So I found this third-generation cobbler in Burbank, and um, I begged him to teach me how to make shoes. And, you know, that's a dying craft. It doesn't, it's not something people do by hand anymore. Um, and I spent, you know, three months in his workshop making shoes, but I really only at the end of the day made one shoe. I didn't even make a pair (laughs) and it was the shittiest shoe. I couldn't wear it. So then that shoe was just a sculpture that when I I exhibited as in the show, I just threw it in the corner and it looked like someone lost one shoe at the gallery. And that was the piece. So things like that, where for me, it ends up being this kind of like, wah, wah, like (laughs) underwhelming sculpture. But I got to spend three months with a cobbler. Yeah. But you understand the pangs that they go through to actually make, you know, said object. Right. So you understand uh, not only the process, but, you know, the, the hardships and the arduous nature of, of getting to some kind of result. Yeah. And I think it's also about finding the individual's practice or approach to something that has a lot of history or a lot of a lot of baggage. You know, if you're a third generation cobbler, you're not going to be the one to quit. You know, where I don't have that exactly because I've never committed to any one <laughs> thing long enough to feel guilty about leaving it behind. <laughs> well, I mean, you committed to having a gallery in L.A. Yes. Um, and then you committed to opening up rooftop farms. But did right. you have a background in that or no. it was it fake it till you make it? <laughs> uh, I think that might be the words I live by in, in everything I do. Uh, fake it till you make it is definitely resonant for me. But I think, um, I mean, I have a lot of enthusiasm and it turns out that goes a long way. But um, I, I was a very enthusiastic gardener when I lived in LA is when I really had my own garden and got it to a level where I felt like I I could, you know, talk about it or at least eat from it, which was great. (laughs) And then when I moved back to New York and I was getting my MFA at Columbia, our studios were on the West Side Highway on 125th Street. And I convinced the school to give us a bunch of money to build a rooftop garden because someone spread the rumor that I was an expert gardener just because I had lived in LA and had a garden. Um, And I didn't tell them they were wrong, but I definitely never said that myself. And that garden was when I realized that East Coast gardening, rooftop gardening is a lot harder than your backyard in LA. So from there, I ended up... um, getting a, the, the space at MoMA PS1 and you, turning their rooftop into a garden. And, you know, I don't need to do everything myself. I bring other people in who are expert gardeners, I do, you know, so it's not necessarily about authorship for me in that way. 
But what was the point of this MoMA PS1 rooftop garden, as well as the L.A. Getty Museum? Mm-hmm. Were, were they intent to feed people? Were they intent to feed people's minds? Both. I mean, I think they were... I really love open-endedness and kind of like especially in an institution in a museum where everything has a wall label and everyone wants to know what's the answer what's it about did I get it um, and that's just not how art works for not for artists and not for for um, visitors but I think um, for me I felt like in in a garden you have in a way it was a, a parallel or like an ideal version of what someone's experience in a museum should be so you walk in and either you have either you've gardened your whole life or you've never been in a garden before in your whole life in your in your life and you've this is all new but for everybody there's something new and there's something to there's something to learn and you really have to rely on your own senses so the idea of those gardens was that I was growing a lot of heirloom and unusual things I was working with Baker Creek Seed Company, and they have like all of these things that they've recouped that are no longer in circulation. So herbs that you've never had before. So anybody comes up there, especially, you know, is on the roof. So you've spent your whole day in the museum and you've gone floor by floor. Maybe you feel a little alienated. Maybe you're like, shit, I don't want to admit I hate video art, whatever. <laughs> and then you get to the roof and you and someone's up there and they say like, put this in your mouth, smell this, look at this. Like it's all this kind of assault on your senses and everybody gets it and kind of like comes alive and they want to ask questions and they want to engage and people took food home. And then I invited artists there and I did my salad making process at the museum. Yeah. Would would you consider that food art? No. (laughs) That was the greatest uh, quick answer. (laughs) Because, you know, the collision of these two things. Oh, I just got buzzed for that, David. Thank you. (laughs) Um, The the collision of these two things, food and art, gets mashed up. But sometimes they're they're parallel or sometimes they're diverging. Like, where, where do you find yourself on these spectrums? Well, it was funny doing the garden. I um, had I was approaching different people and to get sponsorship. So I called a soil company and I was like, "Hey, I'm doing this garden at the artisan museum. soil, right? What artisan Art, soil? Yeah. Right, right, right. Handcrafted Brooklyn soil. <laughs> no, it was just soil. Um, really into things just being exactly what they are. But yeah, just soil. And I and the first thing the guy said was, "Now let me ask you, is this a garden or is this a quote?" art garden and I could tell that if it was the it was the latter I was not getting the soil (laughs) if it was the former I had a shot it's like not telling people it's your wedding for event right exactly exactly because every because you know for anybody who's a gardener or a farmer they they really don't appreciate people taking something that they've done forever and that has its own its own culture and its own history and its own um you know, kind of, I don't know, thought behind it and calling it art just because they're reframing it. I mean, I think for me, it was, it's important that I can be an artist and I can be, I can be, I can have an art practice, but the garden can just be a garden because I find a garden in and of itself fascinating and stimulating and thought provoking. So it doesn't need to be my work of art. Or utilitarian. Yeah, I mean, a utility, utility is great. As somebody who's done a lot of projects that have no utility, <laughs> trust me, it's really great to send someone home with a bag of groceries. Well, I'm sure someone, a one-legged person, will find that shoe in the corner eventually. Right, right, right. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and come back <laughs> and talk about the artist and salad for president, the blog turned book. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkill. Here today with Julia Sherman of Salad for President. Now, the book itself includes not only a ton of your wonderful recipes, but these interviews um, and outputs. Because I'm not going to say recipes necessarily. It's, it's, it's more like theories and posits on how to compose a salad or, mm-hmm. or just lunch. Um, of these amazing artists ranging from William Wegman to Alice Waters. And when I, when I mention William Wegman, most people, you know, either don't know who he is or you have to reference Weimaraners. Right. These giant Trojan <laughs> horses of dogs. Right. Um, tell me why you approached this fellow photographer and why learning about his salad techniques and methods were inherent of the book. Um, well, I think for me, I realized when I, when I was deciding, when I'm working on the blog, the guests are really just kind of come naturally. So it's someone I sit next to at dinner it's somebody who's a friend of a friend or, um, you know, that we kind of start a conversation out in the world and then I invite myself to their <laughs> studio or their home. Um, for the book, it became more like, all right, well, you only have 11 artists that you can feature. How do they all fit together? What are they, what are they kind of, um, what's the balance amongst them? And what are you trying to say by choosing these 11? And I think for me, it really became people who had a long life practice that they really had found a way to um, balance their commercial work and their personal pursuits and, you know, their studio work and that there had been this experimental nature that was like um, kind of uh, singularly focused. And so William Wegman has always done exactly what William Wegman wants to do. It's the William Wegman way. (laughs) Right. And so William Wegman had the idea that he was going to work with his dogs. And if anyone else has that idea, you'd probably do them a favor and tell them it's a bad idea. But because he did it so fully and so entirely, he owns it. And he's been able to make both like the most experimental weird video art and the most and, and huge advertisements. And I'm not the most artists have not been able to swing that direction or if they wanted to you know the artists they feature in the book but something that I think is really cool about William Wegman is that he's so confident in his vision that he really doesn't care if it's used for a car commercial or um, like a a beta video that's going to be like a grainy black and white thing he made in his studio that's going to show at a museum or children's books or Sesame Street or whatever for him like if you look at all that work he's never compromised it's all the same 
tone. It's the same voice. It's like he, he has nothing lost for him. So I think um, in terms of thinking about like, what does it look like to be a successful artist? It's not that, yes, of course, he is conventionally successful. It's like amazing that he's been able to create the career he has, but he's really happy and really fulfilled and he didn't sell out. Like he's not doing the dogs because other people want him to. He's actually like spends most of his time painting now and like you know, that's a really hard thing. An artist that who's been making the same thing and becomes so recognized for one kind of art in their fifties or sixties, however old he is, I think he's fifty fifties, to decide that they're going to pivot and make and just make paintings for a while is like kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, I feel the same way about Corosit. <laughs> <laughs> In that, you know, it's, it's a singular a thing. It, it, their sameness, it's yeah. cyclical. It happens, you know, every year during Seder. And I've had experimental chorosets, and it's just not what chorosets should be. Right. You know, and, and obviously there's a long history involved with yes. that as well. And it's uncompromising that you have that. And whether or not you love it or hate it, it is what it is. Just to be clear for everyone who's listening, William Wegman's recipe is a Hiroset in <laughs> yeah. the book. I didn't just yeah, it wasn't all of just, a sudden segue into yeah, Hiroset. Yeah. That would be, I would be very lost. Um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, to be totally honest, that recipe was something we came up with together. I had a hand in that because the starting point was William Wegman doesn't like salad. So he doesn't like leafy greens. And so I had to think of like, well... Uh, all right, that's not the end of the conversation. Trust me, you're not getting out of this. We're still featuring you in the book. <laughs> what if we What if we thought of something that's like not technically a salad, but you could make an argument for it? Which I think Hiroset is a salad. Um, it just happens to have no vegetables, which is, uh, you know, like was the perfect loophole. <laughs> so it is William Wegman's Hiroset in the in the book now. Whereas Alice Waters was in your face salad aside from baked goat cheese and garden lettuces uh, i think my favorite thing in the book was actually the leftover salad breakfast taco yeah just because things wilt especially during these summer times but to be able to like re-champion them the next morning and then utilize that talk to me about why you chose her for the book and how that recipe came uh well I think um, for me, the interesting thing about Alice Waters is mostly that she really got her start cooking for artists. And um, I think of her as a creative director, not really a chef. And so she's really built up an aesthetic, a world, a language, everything around what she saw, you know, what, what her vision was, you know, back in the 60s. And I think, uh, you know, in 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 learning more about the origins of Chez Panisse, which of course now is like such a food institution, but it really was born out of her relationships with, in experimental, with experimental filmmakers. She, her partner at the time was Tom Luddy, who was running the Berkeley Film Archive. And um, so all of these new wave, amazing filmmakers were coming through Berkeley and she was cooking. So, I mean, it's incredible to think of like Godard and Varda and all of these people sitting around a table and Alice being like, I'm going to make a salad, you know, <laughs> like to me, that just felt like, a, Oh, that's, I really identify with that. That's how I started to cook as well. And I think, um, I was really interested in that side of the story and how that enabled her to evolve into this kind of entity, this like 360 degree, um, creative force as it's not just it's not a restaurant it's a yeah. whole other thing well and also her aesthetic is so pure right um and patricia curden her longtime illustrator mm-hmm. uh, had set that tone with with yeah. the aesthetics that were printed on right. the menus or in her book so right. like she's such a visual thinking person alice right um in that 
it made sense to me that she was sometimes more artist than chef. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, and then to answer the question about the food, um, the salad she, she suggested um, and prepared for the book was her classic salad. And the story, I mean, it's almost like there's lore around Alice. Like, I mean, there's all of this, there's like salad lore, you know? So she went to, uh, to France and she brought back the first mesclun lettuce seeds and she grew them in Berkeley. And then, you know, whether you like it or not, like that's where the mesclun lettuce salad came from. And uh, so she prepared the most classic salad on the Chez Panisse menu, which is baked goat cheese and garden greens and that was all great but I kind of wanted to like crack Alice like I'm like god Alice is like the whole thing is so tight like she never is not Alice like you know it's like and that's that's great but then she told this anecdote about eating old salad tacos standing up for breakfast and I was like I got her like the mother of slow food oh yeah and fast she breakfast. also had me at standing up while eating right. I'm usually over the sink right or if not on the street with slices of pizza right all the way to soup right so I was like I found your your Achilles heel, which is still awesome. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> the but nicest so, Achilles heel you've ever seen. Right, but I love the idea of being like, oh, like even Alice Waters eats breakfast in the rush sometimes, and it's a, it's like an, un, it's a, an unphotogenic taco, which was like perfect because everything else was like roses and her craftsman home and this beautiful perfect salad and abundance of produce and all the things we love her for. Yeah. But well, I mean, let's talk about the abundance of edible flowers too because that's something I think you know uh, Chez Panisse has come to be known for I did not know that Madeline Fitzpatrick who probably is one of the most theatrical entrances to a house and a kitchen I've ever seen Mm -hmm. uh, that she sometimes and sometimes not delivers those to Alice oh yeah so Madeline Fitzpatrick is um, this wonderful painter and um, eccentric woman and couture collector and she lives in uh, this compound that used to be the home to a cult community and um, she and her husband Evan Shively who's a chef chef turned arborist and they moved there and they revamped this whole place and their kitchen um, which is featured in the book is has a is an orchid farm and it's got water features and it you know the whole thing is basically made of like vinyl and metal siding it's not like a remarkable home but from the exterior but when you get inside it is transporting and so um she has a wild seeded salad garden which she's let go to seed over 30 years and actually christine milky introduced me to her and christine refers to her as her fairy godmother um and so she has this incredible, incredible garden. And uh, every night, Evan makes this elaborate meal. Like, I mean, I, the best food I've ever had in my life was at their house. I mean, a few, I've eaten there a few times. And um, at the end of the meal, she comes with a salad that she's picked that has over 100 different herbs and flowers in it. She dresses it with like this $300 balsamic vinegar and olive oil. And then you're meant to eat it with your fingers or with chopsticks. It's like very dogmatic. Um, and it happens at the end of the meal, and this is their ritual. And um, she's, you know, she's just like, she has really created her own world. And when you show up, she kind of, she's like in her pajamas, and she really, she looks a little like, you know, wacky. And then she tells you about, like, offhand that she's got this couture collection. And when she goes out in San Francisco, I've never seen this because I've only visited her in her home. She apparently wears these, like, Alexander McQueen, like, crazy contraptions with feather eyelashes and wigs, and it's, like, a whole scene. So I just loved how she had really created her own universe and her own kind of aesthetic and also rituals around food. I think you define her as a painter, gardener, and performer in the book, 
And aside from just those three things, she just seems like such a personality, such an aura to be around. Yes. Japan, uh, which is a favorite country of mine for many things, you slowed it down a bit because one of my favorite passages is about a ceramicist in Mm -hmm. Nara. Mm -hmm. And it was putting the bowl before the salad. Mm -hmm. You know, that you Mm -hmm. actually have to contemplate the vessel that it's in. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you had one of the loudest (laughs) scream bands I've ever seen make the most tacit and quiet salad I've ever seen. Um, Talk to me about that contrast. Well, Japan was like a really unique challenge for me as someone who moves through the world kind of relying on being able to charm people. (laughs) It's really hard to do that in Japan because nobody wants you to come to their house and nobody wants you to flatter them or ask questions or look at them for too long or take their picture. All of these things are like not, not of interest. So, um, you know, I think I showed up in Japan and I was like, all right, I've got to make salad with people here because everything is so beautiful and the food is incredible and the, and you know, I mean, for obvious reasons. Um, and it was really, really challenging. So with, um, Shinji and Maki who are in the band boredoms, which is a really, as you said, loud, aggressive noise, conceptual noise band. Um, their day to day life is very quiet. She has a, a children's baby clothing store and he like, I don't know. I, I don't think he really works, but, um, outside of playing music, but they live in a suburb outside of Osaka and they came and they picked me up at the airport and I ended up staying with them for a week. Um, but it was, you know, it's kind of nerve wracking because they're not, they have a very different relationship to kind of filling time and space and conversation. And, um, so I kept asking them in email prior, would you guys make a salad? And they would answer every question except for that one until I finally was just really embarrassed. Cause I was like, Oh my God, they hate my project. Now I'm humiliated. <laughs> and then finally after a week and I'd given up on it and I wasn't taking pictures because I was like, I'm going to respect their privacy and okay, I can accept it. You know, last day they were like, let's make some salad now. And I was like, what? Wait, what? I don't even have my camera. And it was like this really rushed thing, but they made this delicious salad that, uh, he uses this kombu tea. It's like a seaweed powder. You can buy it sunrise mart or any Asian market, but, um, he uses that in the dressing and it was just, this like, I mean, they're incredible cooks. Uh, and then the other person in Japan was a ceramicist named Yui Sujimura, whose father is a national treasure. He's a um, really famous ceramicist. And Yui built his own house in the woods in Nara. And um, leading up to the house, all the discarded pieces of his uh, failed pottery that's exploded in the kiln is like creating a moon-like landscape. It's really trippy. I mean, the whole landscape is like shards of pottery. And um, we went there, and he speaks no English. Um, and... Uh, we had just seen his work in an exhibition and it was like so precious and beautiful. And then in his house, it was like the dog was eating out of the bowls. The trash <laughs> was the bowl. Like, you know, they were, it was just integrated into his life and he was so not precious about it, but put, he made the perfect salad for the bowl. Like you could tell that the salad was second. To, there was no salad going to fill that bowl. It took up like an eighth of it, you know, like you, so I think, you know, there were very, very different kinds of artists for sure. Um, one like working in a much more traditional medium and the others, I mean, the boredom's are really interesting because they're not even famous in Japan. They're just famous all over the rest of the world. Yeah. So, but I mean, at the end of the day with both of them, all anyone's looking for is a nodding head in the word Oishi to come out of someone's <laughs> mouth. But let's let's talk about your delicious salads too, because this isn't just about these interviews. This is about 
your travels and, and, and kind of your visual research and uh, reconnaissance. And th- there are reference points to Mexico, to Austria, to mm-hmm. California, of co- course. Um, how do you conceptualize a salad? Like, like, what do you take back with you and how do you kind of reassemble that? Um, well, I always, I mean, I really like to um, respond to specific ingredients. So I like to start with one thing that excites me and then figure out how to like put a frame around it, but not lose it, you know, like, so I try to not go too far. I think I do, you know, I'm careful to draw too many comparisons between art and salad, but I do think that the one thing I think about a lot as a a touchstone is that, um, I always really gravitate towards art that's really simple and clear and straightforward and, um, a simple gesture. And I think that's the most elegant way of communicating an idea. And I think that really, for me, works with food as well. Like, I hate overcomplicated food. Um, and I, I hate when it feels like it's more about the person making it than it is about the food itself or the ingredients. So, you know, if it's that black uh, Austrian pumpkin seed oil, then I'm just going to put it on toast with the right herbs and make it really be the first question somebody asks is, what the fuck is this oil, you know? And And if people don't know kernel or cabiscanol, they should because it's it's one of the most mind-blowing oils I've ever tasted. It's it's, um, dichromatic also, just to, to get into the aesthetics of it. So if it's in a puddle, it's green, but if you streak it, it's a red, like a maroon red color. So it's this like trippy oil too but that or you know when I travel a lot like I I bring home ingredients and I often forget what they are or how they're supposed to be used or how (laughs) I had them so then I just like try and taste it and really respond to that but you know I mean it's almost like trite or cheesy to say now but I do just go to the market and respond to the produce and then really try and like figure out what's the best way if we're assuming you spent way too much money on your produce what's the best way to just not mess it up <laughs> well like you said simply and, yeah. and these days barbecue days uh, a grilled peach panzanella salad is is kind of all you ever want in the yeah. world um that said, you're also really great at kind of these replacements. And I love a good tuna in the swab, but I don't have tuna around. Right. Uh, and I am a sardine fanatic. Yes. I love conservas. Anything and anything canned fish is right. at my house. And just to be able to kind of make that your own by, uh, you know, replacing something that is within arm's reach yeah. or uh, much more accessible just makes it a completely different salad. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I really, one of the goals I set for myself and tried to keep sight of as I was writing this book was really remembering how people want to cook and not food people necessarily, but just people who buy cookbooks who eat dinner. And so, um, it's been really fun seeing all these people on Instagram, like tagging, me and sending me photos of their version of my dishes, which is like, you know, and every single one of them is like, well, I couldn't find this. So I left it out and I replaced it with this. (laughs) And I'm like, it's the best because that's how we all should. It's better after the book comes out. It's not good when people are (laughs) recipe testing. Yes. (laughs) No, that's true. Yeah. After the book comes out. But um, yeah, I like to keep it pretty realistic and like pretty every day. But, you know, that can also become something totally exciting and inspiring just because you have one new ingredient, you know, or you're using one spice or one oil or one vegetable that you've never cooked before. But it doesn't need to take all day. Yeah, but you're also giving people the tools to be able to grow their own victory garden and, right. and kind of experiment with things like agretti, yes. um, which oh, is my favorite. some Roman greens that just like we don't see in the States or in New York that often. Yeah. And 
they're kind of like melon ribbons in that sense that people don't usually cut melon like that. Right. When you see it in a different form, yeah, it, it blows feels, your mind. Yeah. Sadly, um, one of the best growers, this place, uh, Silver Heights Farm, that used to sell seedlings in Union Square is no longer there. But they used to have a gretty, which was incredible. It's this, um, it's almost a succulent and it's salty and it feels like something that would grow in the desert or underwater or something. Um, but, and, and I just love also because I'm like, I'm such a little, I, I'm always looking for a deal. But yeah. <laughs> I love that it's like $20 a pound, but or if like you grow Minutina it Minutina just looks like grass. Yeah. Minutina looks like grass and that's like, you know, all of these things, when you grow your own food, you're able to, it's not harder to grow just because it's expensive to buy in the store. That's not, there's not a one-to-one relationship between price. You know, I mean, it's a, it's rarity and how accessible it is or, you know, whatever. But I think um, it, it it's really fun for me this time of year to go into my garden and feel like I can pick a like $30 salad in two seconds. (laughs) (laughs) But but aside from, you know, making these beautiful salads and teaching people how to wash greens correctly, I I think this is much more a story about how to let your garden grow in the larger sense of being an artist or being a person in the world and being able to share those meals and conversations with people. So I only help people dig into Salad for President as much as I have. And just thank you so much for being on. Thank you. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Chef's Collaborative, Music by Cookies, and David Tattashore Engineering. Cheers. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.